0: Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives—jobs, debts, incomes, our own, and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. I want to begin today's program of Economic Updates by talking about the sad spectacle of President Biden and the Democrats, or to be more correct, the mainstream of the Democratic Party fading away in more and more of the proposals they made during the campaign and in the early months of this first year of the Biden presidency. And to show you what I mean, I want to pick an example. And this has to do with something arcane in the tax law, but it's arcane in terms of its language and detail, but it's very, very revealing of what. A sad spectacle is. This has to do with something called stepped up basis. So let me explain very briefly what that means. There is a way of earning money in our society that has nothing to do with the work that you do. It has rather to do with the property that you own. If you own stocks and bonds and you pay a certain amount of money to buy them, and then a little time later you sell them, the difference between the price you pay let's say $10 a share, and the price you sell, let's say $50 a share, if things went well for you, that difference of $40 is your capital gain, the gain in the value of the capital that you own. You are supposed to pay income tax, since it's an income to you, obviously. And Over the years, rich people, and why rich people? Because they own the bulk of the shares. 10% of our people own 85% of our shares. So to talk about shareholding, beyond the trivial little amount that your grandmother may have left you, if you're lucky. We're talking about the richest people in the society, and they've gotten the law to read that they can pay a lower tax on the income they get from property that compared to what you and I pay in terms of the tax on the money we get for working, actually spending our brains and our muscles to do work. But here comes the detail. You're supposed to pay that tax, but of course there are loopholes, because the rich don't even want to pay the low percentage. And by the way, the basic tax for capital gains is 20 percent, much lower than the majority of, say, middle-class people pay on the income they get from the work that they do. So we already favor the rich by giving them a low rate of taxation on their income from not working, but from owning. Oh, now here's the loophole. If you leave a share of stock, let's stay with the example. You bought it for $10, it's worth it, uh, worth now $50. If you happen to die and leave that share of stock to your children, say, they are allowed to count as the cost of what they have in the way of that share, not the $10 you paid, but the $50 the stock was worth at the moment that you died and passed it to your children. That's called the basis price. And why is that important? Because if you had sold the shares before you died, you would have had to pay income tax on the $40 capital gain. But by leaving it to your child, your child can sell that share 10 minutes after you died for $50, and there's no capital gains tax because the basis cost considered for the inheritor is what it was worth at the time of the inheritance. So no capital gains tax will ever have to be paid by anybody on that capital gain, a loophole. And of course, what's it for? To keep wealth in the hands of the rich, so they can pass it from one generation to another. Another way to see that is with inheritance tax. This may come as a shock to you, but once upon a time in the United States, we uh, levied pretty hefty inheritance taxes on people. And you know what the reason was? It was called the level playing field, or equal opportunity. It was thought appropriate in a capitalist society like ours that everybody have a roughly equal start. And it wouldn't be equal if you were a little baby who inherited a million dollars living near another little baby who inherited zero. You wouldn't be equal opportunity, would you? And it wouldn't be a level, level playing field either. And so inheritance tax was an attempt to make our society more equal opportunity, which is why the rich people got rid of it. Today, as I'm speaking to you, a rich family can leave the first $23.4 million to their children before any federal inheritance tax kicks in. Well, the percentage of our people who have $23 million to leave is less than than two or one or two percent. I haven't looked recently, but it's a trivial, tiny minority. But the law is good for them. Not for you, but for them. And please keep that in your mind. The Democrats said they were going to do something about all of this, and they're giving up one after another of these promises. Pathetic, sad, and tragic for the rest of us to watch. And remember when they say they can't afford to do something useful because there isn't the money. Oh, the money is there. They're just not prepared to go after and tax it. And their commitment to equal opportunity, equally sad. My next update has to do with the elections at the end of September in Germany and Austria. There's so much in the important lessons this election teaches us, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, about what German politics looks like, how it's different from the United States, and what we might draw as inferences from that. First of all, in Germany there are six, count them, six political parties that struggle to win elections. None of them comes close to winning 50%. If they did, they could govern the country alone. They'd have the majority but they don't, and they rarely do. For example, many of you know that Angela Merkel was, and to this day uh, still is, the leader in Germany. But her party, the Christian Democratic Union, is not a majority party. So for the last many years, she's had to govern in a coalition to get up to 50 percent of the seats in parliament. The party she runs, which got about Somewhere between 25 and 30 percent last time, has to be in coalition. And they were in coalition. And here comes one of the first pieces of news that the mainstream media in the United States tries desperately hard not to report. Who was the coalition partner of Angela Merkel, who made it possible for her to be the government? Answer the German Socialist Party. That was her partner. And in the elections on the 26th of September, they changed roles. She is now the second party, her Christian Democratic Union, and yep, you guessed it, the number one political party in Germany is the German Socialist Party. Think about it. But before you think too much, let me tell you about the government of the Christian Democratic Union. That is, the major right-wing, right-of-center, let's call it, political party in Germany. It might surprise you to know what the conservatives in Germany do when you compare it, say, here to the United States. I'm going to read you a list of comparative statistics between Germany and the United States, and remember, it's the German conservatives who are responsible for what I'm about to list for you. Gun deaths. Most recent year in the United States, 19,379 gun deaths in 2020. In Germany in 2018, the most recent year I could get numbers, 815 gun deaths. Compared to the United States, 20,000 gun deaths. Public higher education in Germany is free. The vast majority of Germans go to Public universities for higher education, tuition and fees, zero. Here in the United States, well, it's off the chart. That's why we have the debts for our students that we do. Prison population. In the United States, 810 people per 100,000. In Germany, 78 people per 100,000, right? Less than 10% of the population uh, in jail compared to the United States. The top income tax bracket in the United States, 39 percent. In Germany, 50.5 percent. Paid sick leave. In the United States, the law mandates nothing in the way of paid sick leave. In Germany, the law mandates you must be paid 100 percent of your salary for up to six weeks of paid uh, sick leave per year. Think about it. Annual vacation required by law in the United States? None. In Germany, you must be given every person 24 day work days of paid full 100% paid vacation plus 9 to 12 holidays that have to be paid on top of the effectively 5 weeks of paid vacation. The standard work week by law in Germany 35 hours. In the US 40. In Germany, every company with more than 2,000 workers gets to give the, has to give the workers the right to elect a little bit less than half of the members of the board of directors. I could go on. All of these things were captured, these benefits, by the socialists at various points in German history. But the conservatives don't undo them because they dare not, they can't conservatives in Germany would be considered Bernie Democrats or more to the left in this country. That's how different these two societies' politics are. Then there was the referendum in Berlin. This is astonishing when you think of the comparison to American politics. There was a referendum to stop runaway rents in Berlin. Rents have been going up like crazy, and the people began a movement to stop it. And the way they decided to make it stop was not this or that detail, law reform. No, no, a head-on demand. Every apartment owner who owns more than, I think it was 1,000 apartments, big number. So only the very biggest landlords, and there aren't that many of them, because they're the culprits that have been raising the rents the most they would be, here we go, deprived, expropriated of their apartments. How many were involved? A quarter of a million apartments would be taken away, paid for, bought at a market price, taken away from the private, run as public housing, and to make sure that rents don't go up the way they have in the past, making them politically responsible if they dare do it. This was put to a referendum. Here are the results on the election day in Berlin. Ready? 56% of the voters were in favor of taking the property. 39% were opposed. It passed. It's not a binding referendum, so now negotiations will have to begin. But it's unmistakable what the people want, and they want public housing to stop. Rent increases. Eminent domain was the law that allowed it in Germany. Eminent domain is part of the law of the United States. It could be done tomorrow if the political will were there. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. And as always, I want to thank all of you whose support makes this show possible each week, especially our Patreon community and other regular monthly supporters. Please, Give us your help. It makes this show possible. If you haven't already, please go to patreon.com economic update or visit democracyatwork.info to learn more about how you can partner with us. Please remember to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to check out our newest book, Stuck Nation, Can the U.S. Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profit Over People? by award-winning print and broadcast journalist Bob Henley. You can find it at democracyatwork.info slash books. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of Economic Update. Before the break, I was telling you about the German elections, but I want to tell you also about elections the same day in neighboring Austria, because there's something happened that's gotten even less attention in the mainstream media than the realities of German politics and the stunning victory of the Socialist Party in the elections at the end of September. Austria has two large cities, the Mainer city, Vienna, that everybody knows about, but the second largest city in Austria is called Graz, G-R-A-Z. It is a city of a population of 330,000 people with a surrounding metropolitan area uh, that makes the real population of that urban center about twice that, or over half a million people. The elections were won on the 26th of September in the second largest city of Austria by the Communist Party of Austria. Not the Socialist Party, the Communist Party. It is a party that is famous across Austria because of one of its rules. Any party official who earns more than 2,000 euros a month, that's about $2,500, more or less, per month must give the excess over that back to the communist party to give money for its fund for needy people in Austria. It is an anti-capitalist party, long-standing, long history in Austria, and they are now the dominant party in the second largest city of that country. And I look at you all, a little special, because it has a reputation of being a very conservative uh, Roman Catholic country, which it has been, but there are rumblings of change, and I wanted you to know about one particularly, because you're probably not going to hear about it any other way. My next update I give a title to. I'm calling it Yale for Sale, and I want to explain what I mean. Yale has a program — it's had it for several years — called the Brady-Johnson Program in Grand Strategy. And the person running it was history professor Beverly Gage. She made quite a name for herself. She's a well-known historian, and she ran the program with great success. However, it turns out that Brady and Johnson have their names on this program, not because of anything they've accomplished, but because of the money they've given. Mr. Brady was the treasury secretary in the Reagan White House, and Mr. Johnson is the largest single donor to Yale University in its history. And for those of you in the California area, I want to let you know it's the same Mr. Johnson who owns the San Francisco Giants baseball team. He is a billionaire. And Mr. Brady and Mr. Johnson didn't like that Professor Gage, who was chosen because of her credentials as a professional historian, was making decisions about diversity of people involved in the program, diversity of points of view. They didn't like any of that and they used their money to get Yale to do what? They demanded a panel to oversee her work, and they demanded that Henry Kissinger be the head of the panel. They demanded it because they give money, and Yale caved. And a few weeks ago, Beverly Gage handed in her resignation from the directorship of the Brady Johnson program, because she couldn't work under a right-wing pressurized panel overlooking everything she did. That's not academic freedom. That's not an open-ended, honest relationship of a university to its personnel. Remarkable. Not remarkable because of Yale not doing it before. Yale has a long history in systematically discriminating against critics of capitalism. And I should be transparent with you all. I am a graduate of Yale University. I have two master's degrees and one PhD from that university. I was there as a student and then as a teacher for many years. So I know directly of what this means. Let me conclude beyond the shame of Yale, which is operating much more like a business than like a university, which is pretty much where things have come down. But I want to conclude by telling you a little more about Mr. Johnson. Besides owning the San Francisco Giants, he's a big financial supporter to both Bush and Trump. He gave a significant amount of money to Representative Boebert, you know, that remarkable congressperson who wears guns, if I recall, on her belt and is a big believer. He supported Albert Lee Guillory of, of Louisiana, who switched from the Democratic to the Republican Party as a leader of a movement to bring African Americans into the Republican Party. He was a big supporter in Mississippi of the, candidate, the Republican white candidate who was running against a black Democratic candidate. I could go on, but you get the picture. Of who this man is, and Yale chose to sell out to him. And I want you to understand this goes on all the time, and Yale is not by any means the only place that does it. And why is this done? Because the people who are billionaires want to control the education process. They want to make sure young people get taught this way and not that way, to look at the world this way and not that way. That's what they're doing. That's why they're doing it. And the administration and the students and the professors at these institutions better look hard in the mirror to think about who they're working for. And what they're working for. I want to turn next to the so-called problem of our supply chains. You've asked me in many of your emails to do this. There's a shortage of all kinds of things, a shortage of workers, a shortage of products on the book uh, of the store shelves, and so on. And we are being told a, a bunch of nonsense here that, particularly for an economist, is a little bizarre and I'm used to this sort of thing. So let me begin. There's a basic law in economics called the law of supply and demand that I'm sure many of you have heard. If you assume that the demand for something is what it is, whatever it is, but you restrict the supply, you know what happens? The price goes up. Now think about this from the point of view whoever supplies the product. If we want the price of toothpaste to go up, for example, we can restrict the supply. We, the producers, produce less toothpaste. It becomes scarce. We fund all kinds of PR people to tell us what the reasons for the scarcity are. I'm going to come to that in a minute. But the bottom line is, by restricting the supply, the demand, the people who want the toothpaste. We'll have to pay more for it because it'll be scarce. Meanwhile, we can fire some workers because we don't need them since we don't need to produce as much toothpaste as we used to because we're restricting the supply. So we have saved on our costs, but the price of everything we sell goes up. That's a recipe for profit gains. Lower costs, higher price per unit sold. No great rocket science here. The only problem is if people understand what we're doing, because we, the producers, and they have a name, we call them capitalists. The capitalists restrict the supply, jack up the price and the profits. They don't want you to get angry at them because of what they're doing. And the solution to this problem that they've come up with is flood the airways with phony other reasons why there's a shortage. So here we go, these are the ones you're going to hear and the ones you've been hearing. COVID. Everybody knows we have COVID. So you see, COVID is somehow producing these shortages, I don't know, workers get sick. Well, if you actually look at how manufacturers have been going, they've been making those workers come to work sick or not. Half of the terrible sickness is because workers had to stay at work for one reason or another but it's a nice story to tell. Here's another one. Overseas, people are behaving strangely and, and, and not doing what they're supposed to, maybe because of COVID over there, or maybe because of bad policies over there. And now that we bring goods from a long distance more and more, well, things happening abroad, you know, it's really not under our control. It's happening over there. Get the picture? You're, you're scrambling people's understanding. They're not going to understand that this is a deliberate policy in many, many cases. It is true that in some cases it isn't deliberate, but let's be clear why. We used to produce most of what we consume in America in America, but we decided not to. Well, who decided? The capitalists. They could make more money by producing it in China or India or Brazil. And that's thousands of miles away. And it's true, it has to come then when you finish producing it there, bring it back here to sell. That's a long supply line, and all kinds of things can happen. And that's true. But let's never forget why are we dependent on long supply lines? Because capitalists wanted to make More money, and they could do it there. And they don't want to keep inventories because that costs them money. So when there's a shortage, they can't turn to the storehouse because they don't want to spend the money to store things in a storehouse. So wherever you look, it's the capitalist system of profit first, everything else second, that explains the shortages. Don't be fooled by efforts of those who cause them to blame somebody else. The last couple of uh, updates that we'll have time for are short and they're punchy. I want to bring your attention to a decision by the high court in Kenya, Africa, a decision that's going to have ramifications all over the world. Making a decision in a divorce case, the high court justice there, a woman by the way, declared that housework done by a woman married in a household, has to be considered a job under the law, and has to be paid a cash wage or salary, just like other work in the society. And carrying a baby to term for nine months pregnancy is also a job, and that has enormous ramifications it takes the old idea of wages for housework and makes it real. And things like this that happen in one jurisdiction tend to be noticed and picked up in others. It will be coming to a courtroom near you before you know it. Finally, is there an inflation? We are told by some there is. We are told by others there isn't. And so I want to end today by giving you a list of what has happened to a collection of items over the last period, August 2020 to August 21, and you decide whether there's an inflation. These are the way prices have gone up, and unless your wages went up at least as much, you can't afford as much of this as you used to. Bacon, up 17 percent. Beefsteak, up 16. Fresh fish, up 10.6 percent chicken up 8.6, pork up 8.3. No workers beyond a terrible tiny number had wage increases equal to this. Yeah, there's an inflation, and yeah, it's eating into your standard of living. Thank you all for your attention. We've come to the end of today's economic update, and as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.